truly in you and you alone have the words of eternal life. So Lord, please make your word our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern for the sake of our Saviour, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please take a seat. Well, this morning, we are continuing our series, as Tim has already mentioned, a topical series on atonement, or in other words, the cross, which we started earlier this year. This series concerns the very heart of the Christian faith, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Christians believe that there is more than meets the eye in what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago. And our beliefs are derived from how the Bible speaks of the cross. The same cross, the same death, the same event is being presented from different angles in order to help us to understand the scope of what was achieved on that cross. It is a multi-faceted cross. That is, each facet gives a particular emphasis on what God has done. For example, we have seen redemption. It stresses the heavy price that God paid to liberate us from our bondage to sin. Whereas justification sees it from a legal point of view. Sinners are people who have broken God's laws. But now we are declared righteous by the judge. So each facet of the atonement must be understood on its own terms if you want to grasp the depth of what God has done in Christ. Next week, we'll be looking at victory over Satan that's achieved on the cross. The week after, we'll be looking at Christ as an example for us. Today, we'll be looking at reconciliation. The New Testament passages that was read to us earlier, did you notice the language of reconciliation appearing again and again? We are reconciled to God. God reconciled us, reconciled the world to himself. We have now received reconciliation. So the question this morning is, what does reconciliation mean? We will find out this morning by answering two questions that I have set up for today's talk. Let's begin with the first question. Let me ask you, are you ready to meet your maker? In other words, are you ready to meet God? Haven't you ever wondered, am I ready to meet God? What will he say to me? Will he be okay with me, with how I have lived my life? Will he be smiling or disappointed? approving or raging? Let me ask the question in another way. Are you afraid of dying? For some of us here, the questions may seem very remote. So distant is death from us that we brush the question aside. What is there to be afraid of? But think about it seriously, just for a while with me this morning. People die every day, young and old, sick and healthy. So visualize yourself on your deathbed for a while. What are your feelings when you do so? Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid to meet your maker, your God, 
after you die? Are you afraid of what he will think of you? Well, when we meet someone, whether we are afraid or not depends on whether you are in good terms or at peace with that person, isn't it? So do you think you are at peace with God? More importantly, do you think God is at peace with you? You do realize that they are, very two, they are two very different questions. Many people assume that they are the same. They say, I'm cool with God. I can't imagine why God shouldn't be cool with me. I'm at peace with God. Why shouldn't God be at peace with me? But friends, you may feel at peace with God, but not with the real God, but the God of your imagination. If that is the case, it is false peace that you're having. So you see, it is very important for us this morning that we hear from God himself of what he thinks of me, of you, and of the whole humanity. Well, firstly, the Bible speaks of God and humanity as enemies. Colossians 1 says, Once you were alienated from God, you were and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Romans 5 says, For if while we were enemies. Secondly, God also speaks, the Bible also speaks of God as being angry with humanity. Romans 1 says, The wrath, that is the anger of God, is revealed against heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. Ephesians 2 says, You were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So it is clear from the Bible that God is very angry with humanity. And as far as relationship goes, we are his enemies. You see, for us to understand reconciliation that we are considering this morning, for us to understand what actually happened on that cross, we must be crystal clear about this very basic point. Our maker, our God, is angry with us. We are his enemies. And now, enemy is not simply someone who falls a little short of being a good friend or a faithful friend. That's not an enemy. An enemy belongs to the opposite camp. An enemy opposes each other. And wrath is not simply being upset or being disturbed for a short while. Wrath is very, very, very angry. Intensely angry. I want to read to you now a little section of Jonathan Edwards' sermon. Edward is a faithful American church pastor teacher who lived in the 1700s. This particular sermon was entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I'm reading this part of the sermon to you, to me as well, in hope to help us feel this morning to the very core of our being the biblical truth that we have just discussed. That is, God is angry with sinful humanity and we are his enemies. And Edward presents that biblical truth in a very graphical manner. But I need to warn you though that it's very, very heavy stuff. Very, very heavy stuff. Bear with it. 
and listen it through. Okay? Let me read. Just like one holding a dirty spider by the web over a fire, God holds you over the pit of hell. He abhors you. His anger is provoked and his wrath burns against you like fire. He looks at you as worthy of nothing but to be cast into the lake of fire. His eyes are too pure to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more detestable to him than the most hated venomous snake is to ours. You have offended him infinitely, more than any criminal has offended a judge. And yet, it is nothing by his hand that keeps you from falling. There is no reason, no other reason, that you were allowed to wake up this morning and did not go to hell last night after you closed your eyes to sleep. There is no reason that you have not dropped into hell today, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason why you have not gone to hell since you walked into church today when his eyes saw the wicked way you have attended his worship. Yes, there is no other reason that you have not dropped down into hell this very minute. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath. You are held over that pit in the hand of God. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath licking around it ready to singe it. Did that make you cringe? He did for me. It's very raw, isn't it? Very, very raw. But do you think Edward is that far off from the Bible's own description of God's anger towards humanity? Isaiah 59, that was read to us during the Bible reading, describes the wickedness and the lies and the violence and evil and injustice that separated man from God. A few chapters later in Isaiah 63, it speaks of God's vengeance against his enemies. It speaks of God trodding on a wine press. You know a wine press? God is trodding on the wine press. In anger, God trods. In wrath, he trampled, Isaiah said. And what was in the wine press? People. In the passage, someone asked God, God, why is your garment red? And the reply, well, it is the blood of God's enemies that splattered on his garments as he trots. God said, I trampled down on the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. And I pour out their live blood on the earth. Friends, the Bible tells us very honestly that our Maker, our God, is angry with us. Sinful humanities are His enemies. The sin we do every day arouses the hostility of God. So, should we be afraid of dying and meeting our Maker God 
I asked. In Luke 12, Jesus says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him, Jesus said. Am I fearful of meeting my maker? I should. And you should as well. And we all should. But we don't need to be. And let me show you why. Turn with me to Romans 5, verse 7. Romans chapter 5, page 1135. Is that right? If I have the same Bible as you. Yep. Romans 5. I should fear, you should fear, we all should fear, but we don't need to be. And this is why. Verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Did you see that? This is what the Bible calls gospel. Good news. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. What did Christ do? He died. Who did he die for? His enemies, his father's enemies, sinners. Sinners who knew God but did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Sinners who did not see it fit to acknowledge God, Romans 1. Notice that Romans 5 wants us to be explicitly clear who Christ died for. Christ did not die for his enemies who had already realized that they were wrong and have said sorry to him. Christ did not die for sinners who have changed their ways and turned towards God. No. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died. Friends, would you die for anyone at all today? Who would you die for? Your loved one? Perhaps a righteous or a good person whose life is worth prolonging in this society? Maybe. But Christ died for his enemies. Sinners. And brothers and sisters, this is the God that Christians worship. A God who came not to be served, but to serve, and gave his life that we might live. 
This is the God we worship, a servant king. Atonement is not some great divine mathematical problem solved by God's perfect algebra. No, it's not. Someone actually died in our place so that we can be reconciled to God. Someone died to remove the obstacle of sin between us and God. Someone's blood was splattered on the wine press instead of ours. And that someone is not just anyone. That someone is God's own beloved son. What happened on the cross is personal. The Father's full wrath, which his enemies deserve, was emptied completely on his own son. Romans 8 tells us, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Friends, our reconciliation to God came at a very high cost. We can be reconciled to God now because on that cross, the interpersonal relationship between father and son has been torn apart. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, we read. Christ bore the Father's wrath on our behalf. The price of our reconciliation is God's, is Christ's alienation. So, am I ready to meet God? Am I fearful of meeting my Maker? Is God at peace with me? Romans 5.1 says, Since therefore we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.9, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Reconciliation is done deal. It is accomplished, it is already achieved on the cross by God himself. The floodgate is now open for man to reconcile to God. For God has reconciled himself to us. So now with thankfulness by faith I can receive and I rejoice in Christ's reconciling work that has been achieved for me. Clothed in his righteousness, I am ready to meet God. For Christ is my peace. I was once his enemies, but now I'm his friends. The second question that I'll ask this morning, at first glance, may seem redundant. What was reconciled through Christ? Well, isn't that obvious? Through Christ, God reconciled sinful humanity to himself. But is that it? Is that all that God has reconciled? Let's take a look at the verses again. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians 5.18. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. What was reconciled? Us. Sinful humanity. Take a look now at Colossians 1.19. It says, Colossians 1.19 says, For in him, that is in Christ, 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him reconciled to himself all things, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what was reconciled through Christ? Well, it says there, all things, everything. The scope of reconciliation is basically universal. It takes in the whole created order. Nobody and nothing lies outside the scope of Christ's reconciling work. So think about it. What actually happened on that cross? Well, something of cosmic scale happened. That is, as a result of the person and the work of Christ on the cross, a permanent change has taken place in our cosmos. A permanent change has taken place. The world was never the same again since 9-11. It caused a dent in history. It impacted us worldwide. Similarly, at that moment in history, 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, on that cross, when Jesus died, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he took his last breath and gave up his spirit. Since that moment in time, the entire universe was never the same again. For God in Christ has reconciled all things to himself. This, my friends, is the scope of God's reconciling work in Christ. It may not be easy to grasp with our human minds, but when it does sing in, the hugeness of Christ's reconciling work, the universal aspect of it, it will blow our minds and it will turn cowards into bereaved men. But what does it mean that all things are reconciled to God? To answer that, we must understand what happened when men first sinned against God. When men fell in Genesis 2, it wasn't a small thing. The unity and the harmony of the cosmos suffered an immense dislocation. That is the, that is the level of repercussions of man's rebellion that we are talking about here. The very fabric of the entire cosmos has been torn and has been damaged. And that thought should really disturb us. I thought it was just, I just spilled some milk there. What's the big deal, God? Relax. But no, we did not just spill some milk. We rebelled against our Maker. We do what enemies do. We oppose His perfect intended design. We dethroned God. And that is why Edward said, we have offended God infinitely more than any criminal has offended the judge. We messed up God's created and determined order. We did not cause just a little dent, but a rupture in the universe. Have you, how have you ever always thought about man's sin? That man's sin only affected another man or fellow man? No, man dragged the whole creation along with us when we sinned. 
Romans 8 says, the whole creation is in bondage to decay because of us. Creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth because of us. Who do you think is responsible for earthquakes and floods and deaths today? Who brought it upon this world? Us. Our sins. But isn't it natural disaster? No, it's not natural. Natural is just a way that we men cover up our sin. Genesis 3 clearly said, we sinned against God, God judged, God cursed. We must own up. Mankind rebelled and messed up God's world big time. Not just the kitchen, not just the backyard, but we messed up the entire cosmos. We messed up. And Christ died to clean it up. Colossians 1.19, God through Jesus reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is, God's created and determined order for the universe is restored. Creation is again under the rightful head, God. Creation is reconciled to God. One last point to mention concerning the extent of Christ's reconciling work comes from Ephesians 2. The context of Ephesians is the reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles. Let me read to you from verse 13. Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross by killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. The first point to take note is Christ's death has enabled both Jews and Gentiles to draw near to God. This is nothing new. We have already seen this in the previous passages. Through Christ, God has reconciled sinful humanity, both Jews and Gentiles, to himself. But a new aspect of reconciliation that we find in this passage is that as Jews and Gentiles are reconciled to God, they are reconciled to each other. That is, reconciliation with God means also reconciliation with fellow man. In Matthew 5, Jesus himself taught, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. That is, it is impossible to enter into the reconciliation that Christ died to accomplish 
And at the same time, we harbor grudges against others. For if God has initiated to reconcile us, sinners, to himself at the cost of his son, who are we not to reconcile to those he has reconciled to himself? Let me draw to an end by quoting to you another pastor teacher by the name of Robert Murray. He wrote this in his diary towards the end of his life. He says, As I was walking in the fields, the thought came over me with almost overwhelming power that every one of my flock must soon be in heaven or hell. Oh, how I wish that I had a tongue like thunder, that I might make clear, make all to hear, and that I had a frame like iron, that I might visit everyone and say to them, Escape your life, for your life. Friends, every single one of us here has a relationship with God, with our Maker. But the question is, is that a good relationship or is that a sour relationship? And behind and beyond every one of us here lurks the shadow of a future judgment before Christ's throne. Are we ready to face our maker? God has reconciled us to himself by the death of his son. The church's task now is to preach this good news, Christ and him crucified. For our sake, he made him who known to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we may be reconciled to God. But it takes two to reconcile. It takes two to make up after a quarrel. God has done his part. He has accomplished reconciliation. So like Paul, I implore, I plead, and I beseech every one of us here today to be reconciled to God, to humbly receive the completed work that God has done for us in Christ. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you as those who cannot comprehend the mystery of the cross, the agonies of Calvary. For you, Father, the perfect, holy God, crushed your Son, your Son who drank the bitter cup that was reserved for us, your enemies. We who were once your enemies are now seated at your table. So Lord, thank you. By your perfect sacrifice, we have been brought near. You have made your enemies your friends. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.